I see another side to it. Public relations. Don't belittle yourself. I'm not prepared to speak about it now. Because you're trying to hide a big conspiracy, Mr. Riley. I find that silly. There is no reality. There are only views of reality, only perceptions. All collective anxieties condense into conspiracy theories. My data is real. There is a disaster. Yes, and there are three million Americans who claim they have had encounters with aliens. Among them, 300,000 women who claim that they have been abducted and gang-raped by aliens. Now, this leads me to two questions. One, why do all these women weigh over 350 pounds? And two, why have we never heard of a single abducted woman in Ethiopia? Hmm? Hmm. I used to be afraid of the dark, but my grandmother told me something that's stuck with me ever since. She said, it's okay to be afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy in life is when men are afraid of the light. We have protocols for treating everything in America. And, uh, and actually, different doctors come up with different ideas. In this case, in a sense, uh, it was the freedom doctors who did it. I was at an academic medical center, and that's my base, but myself in uh, our group, we call ourselves C19. We have like 500 people in the world now. We put together ideas. We've published two papers, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium led by Pierre Corey. They've published their protocols, similar. And uh, in fact, ours, we have some overlapping. That's fine. We can't meet anymore. We've been under lockdown. We can't exchange ideas anymore. Our major societies, American College of Physicians, AMA, Infectious Disease Society of America, National Institutes of Health Guidelines, zero for outpatients with COVID. In fact, National Institutes of Health Guidelines say something else. They say, don't treat it. They actually specifically say, don't treat it. Why would they say that? They go further than this. They say, if you come in the hospital and you can't breathe, don't treat it until somebody needs oxygen. That was the very first guidelines that was published October 8th. I showed that to my colleagues in Washington. I said, this document will go down in history as the most nihilistic medical guidance as Americans are suffering. No, it won't. It won't be recorded by history. I, I talk about this every day. I never heard of that. I didn't know that. So it, I do this for a living, not medicine, but reading about medicine and reading about COVID. I'd never heard that before until right now. So what would be the thinking there? If someone comes to the, to the physician, to the emergency room and says, I can't breathe, but you don't think he needs to be hospitalized, you tell the doctor, don't treat him. What, why would you tell the doctor that? The innocent explanation is it's driven out of fear. And the fear is, you know, we don't know how to deal with this. We don't have large clinical trials. We don't have the intellectual support to support our group think. And then because of this, we are going to err on the side of doing nothing, almost as if we're dealing with uh, some type of contagion that you'd read in a Michael Crichton book. I, it could have been all fear-driven, but I have to tell you as a doctor, I, that's not in my moral DNA to let people die with no treatment. Of course I'm going to try some steroids or some ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. I'm going to add Lovenox and some other drugs. Of course I am. And sure enough, myself and others found out over time. We can get people through the illness. And, and now we have these groups in the United States 
Where there's the bird group in England. We've got panda in South Africa. We've got treatment domiciliary, which in Italian means treat them at home in Italy. We've got COVID medical network in Australia. We've got like-minded people that say, listen, treat this early at home, but we don't have a single bit of regulatory support. We don't have a single bit of uh, your conventional medical society port. We have Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS. Now they publish a home treatment guide. They publish a list of all the treating doctors. Uh, we, you know, so Americans have found this out, but I'm telling you today, 10,000 sick Americans are being treated every day through these methods. The hospitals are nearly empty. They've got some COVID patients, but we are handling the problem now. We, we didn't have this back in August and July, but we have it now. The complexion of COVID-19 in terms of the dark nature of it in the United States completely changed with early treatment. It's, this is American success story. It, well, for sure, for the individuals who know it's there and have physicians who understand their options to just letting you die or get intubated. But you're also describing a society whose biggest institutions are not capable of doing science anymore. I mean, that's what you just, that's the story you just told. Science being, you know, the honest evaluation of reality and the retesting of one's assumption. I mean, that's science, correct? It's correct. And Tucker, it's worldwide. Something is up. Listen to this. Queensland, Australia, you've probably been there. April, they put on the books as a law, as a law. If a doctor attempts to help a patient with COVID-19 with hydroxychloroquine, that doctor will be put in jail for six months. What? So, yes. In April, they put it on the books. Okay. Why? Something is up. If you look at the TGA, let's not, let's not fry the U.S. agencies. Let's look at the TGA, the FDA equivalent in Australia. And Australia is interesting. They've been kind of spared of COVID-19. They've been in these draconian lockdowns. They have this huge susceptible population. They're all distributed. They've been in fear for 14 months. The TGA has some guidelines for COVID-19. It must have two dozen recommendations. Don't use hydroxychloroquine. Don't use ivermectin. Don't use steroids. Don't use anticoagulants. Don't use, they list everything you should not do. It's like, what should you do? Net answer, nothing. Wait, okay. So COVID-19 became known to the West in January of 2020. So that was one year and four months ago, okay? So how could, with such a short period of time, the health regulators of Australia know to the point where they codified it in a regulation that hydroxychloroquine is not an effective therapy against COVID-19? Like, how could that be known? It couldn't be known, correct? It couldn't be known, and in fact, uh, there are pieces of the timeline that are suggesting that something is very wrong going on in the world, and whatever's going on, it is worldwide. It is not just U.S. Things are worse in Canada. There are anguishing doctors uh, and nurses in northern EU and in um, Scandinavia about euthanasia and, and having the seniors literally just be euthanized. There's some horrible things going okay, on. Okay, you're completely blowing my mind. I didn't expect this interview at all. I saw, I saw your testimony. I thought you asked a really interesting question. I wanted to hear more about it. I did not expect this. This is really shocking. And by the way, for viewers who are wondering, who is this guy? Is he just some random guy who's claiming to be a doctor? Look him up, Peter McCullough. And I think you'll be quite satisfied after your Google search that you have the authority to say the things that you're saying. I testified under oath. I have 600 publications in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm the president of a major medical society. I'm the editor of two major journals. I've 
had headed up 24 data safety monitoring boards in major drug trials and stopped drug trials early for uh, uh, safety reasons. I'm telling you, I have no agenda, but I am deeply concerned that something has gone off the rails in the world. It involves science, it involves the medical literature, it involves a regulatory uh, response, it involves populations kept in fear and in isolation and despair. Okay, so you've, uh, this is upsetting, but it's also fascinating, I think. You've alluded a couple times to something being up, I think is the phrase that you used. Can you, can you put a slightly finer point on that? Do you believe that NGOs, the enormous nonprofits that have a lot of sway, it seems like, in the public health arena, are exercising influence over COVID policy in the direction that you're describing? Is it that? Is it some international regulatory body? Is it WHO? I mean, like, what is this, do you think? That's really going to be the, um, the goal of investigative reporters to figure this out. There must be stakeholders or there must be some fundamental drivers for a groupthink. Now, this is a groupthink. It's in the minds of people. Is anyone profiting from it? I, I have no idea. And it's just, I just focusing on the sick patient right in front of me. Tucker, I can't tell you, but I have seen things in the last year that I can't explain as a doctor. Why are other doctors not helping with a simple illness to help these patients avoid hospitalization and deaths? Why are they not doing this? There are cases. Uh, there's been three cases in New York where uh, there have been some seniors and they're struggling in the hospital and the families find out about ivermectin, a simple drug that's used uh, in the uh, early outpatient realm to reduce viral replication. It's an antiparasitic drug, very safe and effective. And they beg the doctors in the hospital, three cases, and the doctors say, no, we're not going to use it. And they say, well, so why not give it a shot? No. They go to, to a court. They get a court order. And the judge says, listen to the family and give them some ivermectin. In those three cases, the, the seniors survived. There's two cases going on right now. There's one in Chicago going on right now where they even come with a court order and the doctors say, no, I'm not going to do it. We're not going to give it. And then they, they, they had to somehow enforce the court order to give this poor lady some ivermectin. And I, they were asking my advice. I said, I think it's too late. I'm not sure she can make it, but let's try to give it a shot. There's another one going on in Detroit. There's something in the minds of doctors. What are they afraid of? I mean, getting fired would be my first guess. They work for a hospital or a university that won't tolerate dissent, I guess. I don't, is this a, is this an analog to what we're seeing in the political sphere where no one's allowed to deviate from a certain orthodoxy or else they get bounced? Is that kind of what it is? That's a tractable exp explanation. There is great fear, I think, in the academic medical centers, medical groups and others uh, to do anything that's not in line with uh, the general approach that's been laid out by our public health uh, officials. Now, it's, it's more severe in countries outside the United States. So, for instance, in Canada, UK, for instance. I was interviewed the other day by somebody. It was a little slip that came out, which is interesting. He said, well, Dr. McCullough, what do you think about the most recent ruling from the CDC? I said, ruling? I think there's Supreme Court. I go, think about this. The CDC has always given recommendations. And I use the example. I said, listen, the CDC recommends really? that all of us should eat less than 10% of calories in sugar and saturated fat. That's what they recommend. Is that a ruling? Are, are we going to lose our job over that? Are we going to um, not be able to go to an NBA game if we don't follow the The diet? food pyramid is federal law. 
<laughs> if that was a journalist who asked you that question, let me just apologize on behalf of all of them. There are some, it's gotta be the, the most low IQ profession. I mean, really, for real. Ruling, no, but that's in the minds of people. So our public health authorities, with a, a more than a year of public fear of what's next, our public health authorities have really become larger than life in terms of their uh, ability to uh, um, uh, create an environment of, of, of loss of freedom. Well, also of a subversion of science. I mean, I, I feel like there are two different arguments maybe on different tracks. I mean, there's the, there's the question of, of what kind of society you want to live in and what the Bill of Rights guarantees you as an American citizen. I think it's a very important conversation. We have it all the time. But there's a completely separate conversation about what's in the best physical interest of the patient, what medicines to give the patient, and that's in the realm of science, and that should not be influenced by other considerations. I well, it's in the realm of clinical judgment, and you brought up a great point. Our public health officials make recommendations for a population, and they use generalities. Right. But the next patient in front of me, if a doctor says, doctor, I've really got a bad allergy to this medicine, I said, well, listen, it's recommended, but for you, you shouldn't have it. The doctor weighs risks and benefits, and no matter what, you know, whether it's a medicine, a vaccine, a protocol, it's our judgment reigns supreme. And so when I was uh, pressured on the NIH guidelines and through some agencies, I talked to some agency officials, they say, Dr. McCullough, don't be too hard on us. Look at page eight. And I turn there, it says, even though these are recommendations, uh, the doctor's judgment uh, overall has the, the final word on what happens to the patient. I said, thank you for that paragraph. And I've used it over and over again. I said, even though the NIH says, don't treat patients as an outpatient, it says here that I can use my judgment, and I am. Were you one of the many people who sort of bought into the, the pro-choice rhetoric, not on abortion, but just on the idea that medical decisions would be between a patient and the physician and the family, maybe clergy? The idea that government should never intrude in the intimacy of a medical decision, like that turned out to be a lie, I guess. Like they don't have any problem intruding, do they? There's the principle of autonomy. This is very important. It's written into the Nuremberg Code. We live by it every day. It says the person, the individual, gets to decide what happens to their body. They can take advice, but what happens to their body without pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal. This is really important. Tell us what the Nuremberg Code is. The Nuremberg Code came, came out of World War II where there were atrocities going on. And as we move forward in research, we wanted to learn from this Nazi research, which was, which was awful. We had a terrible uh, situation in the United States, the Tuskegee um, uh, experiments, where it, it, for research, people ought to have informed consent and they can freely participate or not. And we, we follow that in clinical medicine. This is really, really important. If a Jehovah's Witness says, listen, I'm not taking a blood transfusion. We can't force it into their body. If we have a patient who says, doctor, I'm not taking a vaccine. We cannot, without pressure, coercion, or reprisal, we can't have somebody say, listen, I'm gonna lose my job. That's pretty strong coercion, don't you think? Uh, yeah, you, you can't make a living, you can't eat. Yeah, that's about the strongest possible. I mean, short of physical harm, that's How about I can't go to school? I can't, I can't get my college degree. Your children can't be educated if you don't obey? So that's, um, I think that's a point that all decent people have considered at some point in the last week or two, as we're learning that coercion is real and that you will be punished unless you obey. My question to you though, as a, as a physician, is that is in direct contradiction of the Nuremberg Code. Is that something that all physicians are familiar with? Yes. 
so <laughs> why are they standing back and allowing this to happen? The group, I think, is extraordinary. You know, there's some doctors that have told patients, I'm not going to see my, these patients unless they're vaccinated. They can't go into my waiting room unless they're vaccinated. You know, there's hospital in Texas, in Houston, Texas, that came out and said, listen, if, if, if people don't succumb and take the vaccine, that uh, uh, they, for months they said, listen, if you, in order to encourage you, we'll pay you $500. If, if I tried to do that in a research study, the Investigation Review Board w wouldn't agree with that. That's coercive. $500 is coercion to uh, low-income uh, workers. But it still didn't convince them. The workers were you know, looking at the safety and saying, mm, you know, I think we're going to hold back. Then, the, then they came out uh, a week or so ago and said, listen, if you don't take the vaccine, we're going to fire you. I was born in a dead society, dead long before I was born. One of the keys to self-realization is in letting go of the past. Wanting to change a dead society is only useful if you overcome that dead society. Overcome is the key. The equality of human beings is therefore the trap set by mediocre people to the elite. But to be really the elite, then it is also necessary to go beyond the plebs, beyond the mediocrity. You have to beat this society, you have to beat the mediocre people, you have to go beyond mediocrity. At some point, you have to put behind you what is dead, esoterically, this is those acts of resurrection, leaving behind the world of the dead. You must, in a first phase of YOUR life, hate society, and then, in a second phase, return to society. Society as an institution. Magical resurrection of the flesh, to the transcendental plane, thus making it absolute. Peter Bonus wrote, The ancient alchemists knew through their art about the approaching end of the world and the resurrection of the dead. For the soul through the hermetic work is connected again, for all eternity, to its original body. The body becomes totally glorified and incorruptible, incredibly subtle, penetrating every density. Its nature will be both spiritual and bodily. Ancient hermetic philosophers have seen the last judgment in this art, namely in the germination and in the birth of their stone. In it occurs the reunion of the soul ready to be glorified with its original body, in an eternal glory, from Margarita Preciosa. Text extracted from Introduction to Magic, Rituals and Practical Techniques for the Magus by Julius Eveler and the Ur Group. Plus M.Y. Comments.